Well, welcome back to another fabulous, mainly Michael, episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. Well, guys, today we are going to have a fantastic conversation with conductor Michael Francis. He is currently Music Director of the Florida Orchestra in Tampa, as well as the Mainly Mozart Festival in San Diego. He's also chief conductor of the Deutsche Staatsphilharmonie Rhineland Fouts. Say that five times fast. Well, actually, we should see if he could say it five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try to say it one time at all. But thankfully, we have managed to drag Michael away from the sunshine for a week here in Kansas City. And we're excited to welcome here uh, to the orchestra March 4th through 6th for a wonderful program of Purcell, Mozart, and Elgar. Michael Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Stephanie, Jason, and Mike. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Uh, Deutsche Staatsphilharmonie Rhineland Fouts. And by the way, just with that word, it's actually harder to pronounce because it is indeed the wine-growing region of Germany. Ah. So even they can't say it, <laughs> particularly, <laughs> particularly around wine harvest. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. We're so excited to talk with you. Uh, our first question, the most important one, it's supposed to be six degrees here in Kansas City uh, in two days. So can you please bring some warm weather with you from Florida? Please, we are begging you. <laughs> well, right now, I think it's rather charming. What is it? It's in, in the high 60s here or 70s. So it's Ooh, rather ugh. lovely, yes. I do feel right. Nice. I do feel particularly smug, particularly when speaking to my British and Irish colleagues and friends back home. Um, I'd like to show them mm. outside what sunshine looks like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that. Well, um, you know, like uh, several of the uh, guest conductors that we've had the opportunity to talk with this year, um, you were a very accomplished uh, performing instrumentalist uh, before you. Uh, began to focus on conducting. And um, since you haven't been here to Kansas City before, I would love for our listeners just to get to know a little bit about who you are and your your early journey in music that led you here. Sure. So um, I was raised down in East Sussex in England. My father is Welsh. My mother's Irish and he was a double bass teacher. Well, he still is. He's still, he's still going. Um, and so I sort of um, picked it up around 10 or 11. I came back from playing um, football, well, the one without helmets and padding, you know, the one where you use the ball on <laughs> your feet, that one. Um, and, uh, well, I shouldn't mention that, actually, Kansas City, you had a rather unfortunate experience like Tampa Bay Buccaneers, didn't you? Where oh, dear. We, we would, anyway, going back to double base, uh, my father um, uh, so taught me, so I, I sort of managed to get quite good quickly because I had lessons most days. And then I do remember age 12, being on tour, trying to play Tchaikovsky's Full Symphony in communist Hungary mm. um, in 1989. So that was an amazing experience. And from that sort of point on, I really was hooked on it. Um, I wanted to become a, a conductor then at age 14. And that was more out of, I think, a hidden insult because the, the exacerbated conductor of the youth orchestra said, um, that boy should be a conductor. And I think what he was actually saying was, can he please stop being such a backseat driver? Um, and however, it's sort of something went in. And from that point, I decided, you know what, maybe I'd like to do that. And then I went to university in Cardiff and studied all the analysis, history and musicology that you need, uh, all the time still playing a lot. 
And then I went to the Royal Academy of Music in London, did a master's there. I still hadn't studied conducting, um, but then I was fortunate enough to start to play a lot with the London Symphony Orchestra and the, the British orchestras, and I, I got a job there because I felt if I was going to do this, then it's very important that I played in the best orchestra I could um, and to play under the best conductors I could. And so I was very fortunate to get a job with the London Symphony. And you know, I played there for about eight years, eight, nine years as a member, um, which in most orchestras is about 30 years worth of work because they work like crazy. And the average week would be film sessions and Abbey Road, then you'd be on tour in Spain, come back and you still do another Masterworks concert. I mean, we'd often get through two or three programs a week. Um, plus all the traveling. So that was an extraordinary experience. Um, and then from that, I started to do a little more conducting. Um, but basically, Valery Gergiev didn't turn up um, on quite a few occasions. And I did a small amount and I said yes, and someone else said no. And that was sort mm. of how it started, really. And then I did a few jump-ins, um, was able to do those reasonably okay, got asked back. And hey, presto, I'm here. <laughs> nice. You make it sound so simple. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't quite so simple. I look back, I look, I look back on, I mean, one of the jump-ins I did, I, I think I, I was just of the idea that just say yes and then, and then work out how to do it afterwards, mm -hmm. which it seemed wise at the time. Looking back, and I think I was completely crazy. So we had, we had a, a festival with Sophia Goodbye Delina's music in 2007, and Gegev wasn't able to travel because of an ear infection. And they couldn't find a proper conductor. So they asked me to do some of the rehearsals. And I said, sure. Then I ended up doing the concert. And then a few weeks later, John Adams went sick on a tour. People started to think I was poisoning. I wasn't, I promise you. Um, and then I, I just jumped in and did the, the whole concert. That one, I remember at the end of the concert, because I was basically site conducting, um, uh, my brain actually hurt. I remember the ache of the concentration and the focus to get through it. But if you can kind of get through those things, most things seem a little easier. And generally, you get booked a little more than 45 minutes before a concert. Um, so you, it, it's not too bad. But it was, it's a, I think to play in an orchestra is um, such a, an incredible experience uh, for a conductor to do. Um, just, just to feel the effect of other people's gestures, their rehearsals, their psychology upon you, upon your physical production of sound. Um, and then also just to see the, the incredible difference of how the same orchestra can view one conductor. And of course, see, on, on the desk of violins, you can have someone who's a risk taker and someone who is more OCD in personality. They're never going to like the same conductor. It's almost impossible because of, of, of the way these things go. Unless you're Bernard Heiting and everybody loved him. Uh, apart from Bernard Heiting, you're never going to be loved by everybody. And I think that, that mm -hmm. understanding of what it's like is, was very helpful for me. Uh, not necessary because many great conductors didn't go that path, um, but for me it was useful. You know, you mentioned being able to, to sit in the orchestra and view different conducting styles and techniques and appreciate things. I think it's also helpful to just put yourself in their shoes as far as the rehearsal process, the 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 rigor of the schedule, you know, I'm always as a conductor trying to empathize with the musicians and think about what's best for their bodies, what's best for their mental health right now. I mean, I think that's a lot of what we do too, to try to get, you know, we're coaches, we're trying to get the absolute best results out of, out of everyone. And I think thinking about that, all those things from their perspective helps too. So conductors that haven't played in an orchestra for a long time, I think sometimes forget those things or sometimes 
let's say a pianist who's perhaps never played in an orchestra doesn't know what it's like to sit there and experience all that from that perspective. And I always think that that's interesting to put our ourselves in their minds and in their shoes as well to try to get the mm-hmm. best results out of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you go through two stages. I mean, when you uh, stop playing and take up conducting, for a long time, you're an, you're an orchestral player who conducts in your own mind. Mm. The psychology is the same. And uh, and I think in some ways you're too, it can almost be too deferential um, and too aware and too careful. And then, and then I think with a little more time and maturity, you try to aim towards actually, do you know what? You realize the musicians really need the conductor and mm-hmm. they can't actually play this symphony on their own. And if they did do it on their own, it would all tend to be quite slow and mezzo forte because mm-hmm. you don't have that dynamic range. So they need us and we need them desperately. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the, the more I do it, the, the, I, you, know, you never forget what you went through in orchestra, but I tried to sort of get to a point where it's much more about the real role of conducting, which is to help shape the vision of the piece, help people to be able to play it the best. And for that, they need to be inspired, not necessarily by you, but by the music. Uh, and if you can be the right conduit of that, that's very important. And sometimes it's actually choosing to ignore the psychology that you know uh, for the greater mm. purpose of the art. And other times, of course, really sensing, mm. actually, look, there's nothing more I can say. They're just tired. Let's just end 10 minutes early. Mm. And I think it's having both those things. But there's a stage of being very sensitive to it, but at the same time, actually choosing to forget it because your purpose is to be the conductor and the leader. Mm. And um, and there's that strange psychology of both. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, we... We've had several guests who recently who've done a lot of conducting in Europe and and clearly, um, you know, you spent a lot of time playing um, with the LSO and you've conducted many other orchestras in Europe and in Asia, but now you spend a lot of time conducting here in the U.S. I wonder if you find anything different when you're performing for American audiences, but also do you approach programming differently when you're programming in America versus in Europe or Asia? Um, well, there's a couple of points in there. So I'll just answer the first one, um, the difference between the orchestras in Europe and in America. I think the American and British orchestras have a real kinship mm-hmm. um, and they're very similar in the approaches. And obviously the language makes things easier, but at the same time, um, the sense of humour, um, I think is very prevalent. I find often there's a, there's a, a very good hearty approach to work um, and the shortened truncated rehearsal time really means that you approach things often in quite a clear thinking, pragmatic way to get, and everybody's sort of on board to, to get it there straight away and as quick as possible. Um, I think one thing which is slightly different in America is just the, the um, extremely strict CBA rules, um, which take a little bit of getting used to. But once you get used to them, it's fine. You just... As a conductor, you know that you're not in charge. The personnel manager's in charge or the union person's in charge. So you know those things and you get on Did with you it. you hear that, Justin? You see, you see. <laughs> you just made Justin's ego. <laughs> Sorry. So you just you just have to be very careful with that. Now, uh, regarding programming, yeah, I try to just program pieces that I think are going to impact people's lives in a positive way, um, wherever I am. But for sure, composers like Bruckner, um, I think are easier to sell in Germany than they are in America. Um, uh, that sort of stuff. And, and, but I actually really enjoy taking British and American music to Europe. Um, I take Walton and Elgar and, and Copeland and all sorts of things over there, which they may not have experienced. And that's very enjoyable. I think the Germanic music is pretty prevalent in America anyway, because of Beethoven and, and the like. 
Um, so in some ways, there's a huge difference. And in Germany, I can often have you know, three full days of rehearsal, um, sometimes on one piece. So you can go deeper and spend more time with the musicians in that way. Um, but it's fascinating to see that in general, the qualities of, is, of the great orchestras, they're all the same. I mean, they're just amazing. Different style, but quality and the approach of the musicians is formidable. You know, you mentioned bringing um, various composers to uh, the other side of the world. You're actually uh, doing Elgar's first symphony here with the Kansas City Symphony. This is a piece that doesn't get performed often enough, I feel like, in the United States. We always do Enigma Variations. Um, a lot of orchestras played his introduction in Allegro this past year when we could do strings only. Talk to us about this piece and what it, what you love about it and what you're excited to introduce Kansas City audiences to with it. Because I don't think we've done it, at least for a long time, if, if we've ever done it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the great masterpieces, but it absolutely is um, relatively unknown in America. Um, the orchestra are going to adore it because it's one of the greatest symphonies written, certainly of the 20th century. I think you have to remember that before this period, it, um, Great Britain was, uh, we had a little sort of boon of, of, of composers per cell in the Baroque period and stuff. And then there's this huge empty period of hundreds of years, or certainly 150 years, where there was no really great composer in Britain. Um, I mean... We had obviously Handel, but he's. We like to say that good Handel is British and bad Handel is German, but it's not fair or true <laughs> in any way whatsoever. Um, but um, and and then and then Vorjak, of course, came over a fair bit. Mendelssohn. We had these sort of composers who had big influences, but we didn't have a great composer until Elgar came along with the Enigma Variations. So by the time that this first symphony came around. Uh, he was early 50s. He sort of suffered a similar kind of writer's block to Brahms, feeling the weight of history upon his shoulders. But you've got this whole European, especially in German, this great, amazing century, the 19th century of music, which he is there um, upon him. And he also had a chip on his shoulder because he didn't have a, a proper formal education. And Britain has a terrible class system, whereby if you're not born with the signet ring and the silver spoon in your mouth, um, you're always ostracized from certain aspects of society. So there are all these things within it. And then you put on top of that his own um, depressive personality. Um, he was at times almost schizophrenic and, and his mood changes. So this piece is this incredible, majestic journey of so many factors um, with hindsight, we look back and see it, of course, as Edwardian and pre-First World War. But I think I'm more interested in him as a person. We open with this theme that he said it, 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 it represents nothing in particular except um, a wide experience of human life, um, charity, love, and a massive hope in the future. I think that's the greatest sentence. I mean, it makes me smile to say it, just this idea of this opening noble theme that is absolutely um, so glorious and so uplifting. And then that's in A-flat. So A-flat major is the main key of the symphony. And then it goes into this very fast section in D. And the contrast of the two is the, is the tritone, or the, as it was previously known in, in, the, um, in the Renaissance and before, is the devil's tone or the diabolus mm -hmm. in music. So there's this idea almost like of, Sh of Schumann and Florestan Eusebius, these two sides to him, the Janos idea of his personality. And you feel this, this, this battle within him. He does his brilliant thing where the theme at the beginning comes back, but he puts it for the back desks of the strings. So it's this idea of something being whispered, um, but you, you hear it, but you can't see it happening. It's an incredible psychological trick that he does with that. Second movement is this sort of more martial, furtive idea of 
um, of ghost stories and, and this sort of danger and battle coming as, alongside a contrasting section which represents, which for Elgar is very important, the River Wye in the Malvern Hills. So that sense of where he was, the connection to um, the, the landscape. The third movement, I think, is probably the best thing he ever wrote. Um, I mean, if anyone loves Marla, it's almost ahead of Marla 9 at times. It's written a few years beforehand. His maturity and the emotional expression of his real heartfelt nature is incredible. There's a moment in it where he wrote in his score, the rest is silence, which we know are the last few words of Hamlet. Uh, and that was also to do with Jaeger, the guy who wrote for, for Nimrod, the, the variation in the Enigma Variations, which was his great friend, August Jaeger. And he was dying at that time as well. So this idea of the afterlife, what comes next. And then the last movement is very martial and, and, and dangerous and uh, almost a prophetic sense of what's coming up in Europe you know, just a few years later. But at the very end, that hope theme comes back. And when it does, it, there are very few moments um, in art, let alone in music, that have the power of this man courageously overcoming the demonic forces within and at the same time bringing us all, which actually in some ways feels rather appropriate now, coming out of COVID, into this sense of optimism and hope and, and just persevere it's that never give up ability that Beethoven had so amazingly. And Elgar, I felt, showed that. And I think that is art at its very best, is that the honesty of the personal expression combined with the hope and the encouragement and that lamp for communal um, continuation. And that's what he does so brilliantly. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that you said about that that I think is so interesting, well, two things really. Number one is you were talking about this this long um, gap where there were no particularly notable British composers. And of course, the richness of British music has continued, especially especially now, I think. And, and I'm just curious what you think, you know, in the way that Elgar was sort of reflecting in that moment of his life and that moment of history, you know, who... Who are composers in Britain now that that stand out to you that are kind of doing the same thing? Because I, you know, even before COVID, uh, of course, you know, there's so much rancor going on in the world right now, and I kind of feel that, you know, in new music that I see, you know, from everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it, England was described um, as das Land owner of music, um, the country without music um, by the Germans, and yet at the same time, we probably had the richest literary tradition, mm -hmm. poetry, and Dickens, Austin, and Wordsworth, just to name a few. In painting, we had Turner, who was in some ways more revolutionary than Monet. Um, and so we had this in other areas, but just not in music. It, it is peculiar. Um, but then since Elgar, I think it's never really let up. Obviously, we have Britain, Vaughan Williams, and Walton as the main ones. Um, but then continuing, I think we've had another rebirth of great British composers in the last... 50, 60 years, I think, so Thomas Addis. Yeah. I think his music um, is, is has a, a brilliant sense of the theatre, which is, you know, powder her face and things. And Mark Anthony Turnage and his capacity to sort of unite many, many of these great styles. Um, and then there's also some wonderful composers, Anna Klein. Um, I think her music is, she's really captured um, a sense of where we are. I mean, beautiful pieces. I'm sure you've played it like most people played uh, within her arms and pieces like this. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also um, some Sally Beamish and and quite a lot sort of coming out of various styles. And I think Adesh to me is one of the most interesting and turnish for that reason of really taking 
everything and then still creating a style that he wouldn't say is necessarily British, but takes bits of Harrison Burt Wessel um, and then also brings in some of the, the very strong jazz scene that we have in, in London as well. So I'm not sure if I quite answered your question, but... No, absolutely. I mean, I think, or at least I feel sometimes in the US, we get so focused on, you know, new American music, which is terrific. And there's just so much new music in general. It's It's hard to know where to look. Um, but I, I love Addis as well. And the thing that I think is particularly amazing about his writing, there are many composers who write things that are nearly unplayable. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it's really to no positive effect. His music is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult. And when you get it right, mm. it's it's like this fog clears and it's amazing, actually. And it's it feels worth the effort. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and there's there's a, there's a composer called Brian Fernihal. I don't know if you know him, and he his music was always deliberately unplayable. So the creative process for the performer is working out which bits you can actually play and which bits to leave out. <laughs> oh, wow. And he enjoyed that that approach. I think Adders is is um, I mean George Benjamin also. I mean, the, they're not only just great composers; they they have incredible ears. I mean, I think George Benjamin is ear is as and Adders their ear is as good as Boulez or as good as Benjamin Britten. The people who could hear everything and sort of while you're playing this thing, whistle the fourth double bass harmonic. You know those kind of mm-hmm. intellects and musical geniuses um, that I admire and and of course pathologically envious of. <laughs> um, but they are it's it's, it's, it's astonishing um, all round musicians. Um, that I, I, I'm very, very impressed with them. So I want to take a turn here. Um, we mentioned at the top your mainly Mozart festival. My, my question is, why mainly Mozart? Why not blatantly Beethoven or totally Tchaikovsky? <laughs> what, what, what makes Mozart so special that he gets his own festival? Uh, well, the festival is about 30 years old. So I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I came in after about 25 years, so it would have been a probably churlish of me to try to change the name at that point. <laughs> However, I, mean, it, it, I, think, I, think, I think it is interesting with Mozart. I mean, why does he capture us? Um, you know, we're performing the, the C minor concerto, perhaps his greatest concerto. Um, I think for him, it's, if you look at the, the way that his name has been used as a moniker for all kinds of standards, is the gold standard. This, this person is the Mozart of table tennis, is the Mozart of soccer, the Mozart of jazz. And it's this, it's this something that we greatly admire about genius. And there's also something fascinating that we allow genius as long as it's limited. Um, as some people discuss it as the impotence of genius. And with Mozart, because he died so young, because of his difficult life, because of the, the movie, because we know so much about him, because there's so many letters, we have this fascinating insight into someone who has a gift so far above everybody's that it does feel like it is some divine outpouring. But yet at the same time, it is the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours by the time he was 18 of excellence that he just achieved at a far younger age. And of course, it was exposure because he traveled all over Europe and was taught by Johann Christian Bach. And then he went and studied in Italy and and then the stories are amazing, of course, of him hearing uh, in the Vatican, Allegri Miserare, and the piece of music that was never meant to be heard or, or, or seen, only once a year. And the music was locked up in a vault because it was deemed to be so pure that it must have been from God. Mm. And then Mozart heard it once, went home and wrote it down, and they actually accused him of thievery. Mm. So this level of genius, I think, is, is really hypnotic for us. But it can't just be that, because there's other components. Mendelssohn was equally as genius. I think what Mozart did better than anybody else is he observed people. 
I think Beethoven pours out his inner life. Partly he has no choice because he couldn't hear as well. So when you come to the Ninth Symphony, we know that he was very, very deaf, if not completely, because of the stories of him having to be turned around to see the applause. But Mozart, I think, was the greatest mimic. Um, he could compose in any style. And, of course, the stories are famous of him as a child going in and listening to a piece of music and then imitating in the style of whoever was there. And we see that in that fabulous film, of the Milos Forman film. Um, but I think he also observed people. If you listen to the Jupiter Symphony, the beginning of it, it has the opera buffer style, it has this comic, it has the learned style, it has the naive cusp, it has the military, it has the innocence, it has the soliloquy from opera. He's able to bring in so much of our normal life into these masterpieces. I mean, the C minor symphony, he wrote that at the same time as the marriage of Figaro, which is all just this phenomenal sense of humor and, and ridicule and, and the subversion of, of social behaviors. And then he writes this symphony that is so dark, um, so revolutionary in its thematic construction, uh, ends in the darkness. So it's like he almost has to express something else more profound. And I think his piano concertos are the purest sense that I have of any composer to understand the person. And it could, because it was him playing it, I think they're his greatest, I think even more than the opera, uh, the piano concerto, because we get so close to him mm. and the way that he saw his relationship to society. Um, and of course, his music is brilliant, it's witty, it's fun. He's, he was a master in so many genres. Um, Haydn, you would say, never quite mastered opera the same way that Mozart did, maybe more in the symphonies. But then how do you say is, I mean, Mozart did all of them just so incredibly well. And by the age he was 35 when he died. So do you make it a point on that festival to find some works of Mozart that are rarely ever played and bring them to public attention? Or do you try to mostly stick with what people love? Or is it a balance of both? So that's a good question. So um, we've been through a seven-year journey through his life. So in the first year, we performed lots of pieces that weren't so well-known, Bastien and Bastien. And in the second year, we did Thamos, which is this really bizarre, but incredible incidental music to the play. Um, we uh, David Pendatente, which was a resetting of the C minor mass. So I've tried to really look at that through his life to give a bigger sense of it. Um, now, next year, as we move, this is sort of last year's coming up now. Of course, COVID sort of disrupted it and things, but we're finishing with the Requiem. Um, and the clarinet concerto and all the his last pieces he wrote. Um, and it's amazing to see. And what's really fascinating with him is we think of him always as this perfect genius. But when you actually do a chronology through his life musically, you realize a lot of it was not that exceptional. It was normal. Um, and then you get pieces like the, the ninth piano concerto, Jean Homme, which is just just jumps up completely to another level. Um, and you see this this sort of path that happens uh, which is encouraging to all of us that you can plateau and then suddenly break through. And uh, he shows that. So, yeah, we, we do a mixture. Nice. I always think that's such an interesting trait of Mozart, what you say, because there's, you know, there's so much music that if you just heard 30 seconds of it, you might think it's Mozart, like, you know, the Hofmeisters of the world. Uh, he, he has a bunch of flute concertos. I remember as a kid, I heard on, started hearing this flute concerto on the radio. I was like, it sounds like Mozart, but I know there are only, you know, the two Mozart concertos and it's not one of them. So what is this? You know, it's Hofmeister. You know, there's so much music um, like that, that, uh, like you say, wasn't necessarily ex exceptional, but then in so many other works, he found this, this other, um, I don't know, it's clunky to call it another gear, but it's like a, you know, there's something really, really extraordinary about it. And his, 
that sort of sarcasm and humor that comes through, I think in all of his music is, is for me anyway, what makes it extraordinary and what I, what I really enjoy about playing it. Yeah. And I think we, we know so much of his life. I mean, I think we know that when he went to Paris with his mom and his mom died, his father blamed him. I mean, we, we know, we know all these things and it's interesting with him. You can't always hear a direct correlation of the event to the piece of music he's writing on, but it comes out later, like some sort of strange cathartic outburst. So for example, you know, a few months, I think it was after Paris, then he wrote the Symphonia Contratante, in which the viola represents his voice and the violin represents his mother's. And the second movement of that, it's so incredibly profound. Um, and then, you know, he had six children, four of them died, and they didn't die just necessarily at childbirth. This was after a couple of months. I mean, some, so this, this experience that he had, of course, childhood death was far more uh, sadly common in those days. But what he experienced in 35 years was absolutely astonishing. Um, and his composing and performing life, I mean, it was a 30-year career. He started when he was five and he didn't stop. And they, they, Mendelssohn was described by the time he died, I think he was 36 when he died, of having the countenance of an 80-year-old man. Hmm. Their work ethic was on a different level to ours. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and sometimes he would just churn out these little contra dances to make a bit of money. And then, and then, you know, and one, some of his serenades are nice. And then you get the Grand Partita, which is this epic masterpiece. Why did he choose that format for this piece of music that seems to say so much about him and yet was almost incidental music while people were drinking sect? And why did he not have a flute party? <laughs> yeah. No, I, that, I don't know, actually. That is exactly why not. Why is it given all to the clarinets and the oboes? Absolutely. Because, Mike, don't question his genius because the clarinet is far superior to the flute. Let's just be clear. Let's. Ooh, oh, <laughs> those oh, are boy. fighting words. Wow. Oh, I stumbled on the thought <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, as the as the token educator on the the show, I'm always interested to know when conductors are are interested in in working with young people. And I know that you make an effort to work with youth orchestras and and work with young musicians in general. And uh, what excites you about this work? What what makes this important to you? Well, I think that goes to a bigger question of you know why have we all dedicated our lives to music, and what is that purpose? And I think. There's many ways to answer this, and there isn't no is no one glib s- sort of statement to say it. But I think, in essence, it's music's greatest capacity is to teach empathy mm-hmm. um, and to fit to feel. I mean, you can listen to Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, and you can or you can look at the photographs of what happened and read the history books. But when you listen to the end of that symphony and you feel that uh, that rebellion against it, that then the way that he wrote that in, you, it's it's just a, it's. It's that ability to emote with people who went through experiences that you haven't been through in your life. And it can bypass the intellect and just hit you. So I think as a conductor, um, you know, the word maestro means teacher, which is marvellously grandiloquent and self-important. And (laughs) conductors like that. Um, But I think above all, it does mean to communicate the truths of the music. And so I'd like to read a lot about the music and to understand it, to see how it connects for them. So if you can, for example, take a Shostakovich symphony and show what it feels like to be ostracized, to feel what it's to be under uh, duress uh, in every way, and yet still have this burning desire to, 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 to communicate out, I think that really affects people. And if you can find a way to unlock these truths... Um, even if they don't necessarily get it at that stage when they're young, it'll come back. And I've, you know, I've, I'm sometimes sort of 
surprised, horrified and delighted when people who I've worked with you know, five, ten years ago came back and they said, I remember you said this about that. And I'm thinking, wow, I have no idea. I didn't want to remember that ten minutes afterwards. But these seeds go in. And I think when you're conducting with young people, you're effectively like a, a seed scatterer. You're throwing these things out and you don't know whether which ones are going to come to harvest. But what you're trying to do is just unlock a sense of um, seeing outside of the, the modern world. I think we are in a, a real crisis, an existential crisis of human psychology. I think that we've seen that with the, the unfortunate people born between 1998 and 2012. Um, the levels of depression are higher because of the smartphone. And it all to do with, you know, the release point of the Apple iPhone. Um, and we're, we're talking with them, there's great aspects to it. But we mustn't un underestimate or take for granted how this has dramatically affected how we interact with each other. When you see young people texting to each other sat across, when you see the pressures that I didn't have when I was in youth auction, no one was filming me on YouTube, thank God. Oh. Um, I was free to sort of be a normal, carefree young person. And that's changed. And so it's music. And so therefore your world can get very small and it can be very much about ce celebrating yourself or feeling bad that someone else is better than you. And music allows us to just feel that, to work together uh, as a group, to know one's role, and at the same time um, develop tremendous empathy for what others went through. And, it, and broadens your horizons emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, psychologically in a way that no other skill can do. Well said. I, I just, I, I'm just sitting here well like... Said. Wow. Amen. <laughs> yeah. I hate to follow that up with this... What's my favorite food? <laughs> well, that's it's sort of like that. <laughs> it's too. along those it's along those lines because this is a question we ask all of our guests since the show is called Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Um, what is your favorite drink? And if you were sitting in a bar with Beethoven or a coffee house or wherever, what would you ask him if you could ask him one question? So my favorite drink, um, sort of, I, my, having an Irish mother, if I didn't say Guinness, um, I would be immediately excommunicated. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd better mention that. But I mean, truth is, um, I think if I had to choose, it's, it's, it's the death row meal question, isn't it? What would you eat on your, if it was your last meal? Thing? Yes. Um, yes. What would I drink? I would drink a great white burgundy, a Polini Montrachet mm. or Chassani Montrachet, just so that I can really fulfill the, the maestro criteria of being incredibly pretentious. Um, so that would be my choice. Um, but, but probably a Guinness is what I'd like. Uh, and then what would I ask Beethoven? I, I think the, the basic question would be, how did you not give up? Hmm. Why did you why did you keep going? Because most people wouldn't do that. What was that burn? You know, that statement in the Heiligenstadt Testament, he says about I have to for the art, but therefore why? What is that bit? Because that's the key to all of our purpose. Hmm. To understand that man. Um, that's why he is the greatest in many ways, because of that that capacity to 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 still desire the greatest quality for humanity and unity, despite him feeling that everybody, including God, had kicked him out and separated him. But actually what happened was is he had a, a deeper sense of empathy and, and than any of us for everybody. So how did you keep going? What was that burn? And if he could express that, then I think I'd have the great golden nugget of life. What would you ask Mozart? Yeah. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> what would ask Mozart? <laughs> What's your best score at billiards? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I would ask Mozart, just I'd love to know um, 
just his opinion on who was in the room. I'd love to hear him because I think he would do. I think he would be someone I would just want to sit back and listen as he would just do. He would copy, mimic, have make fun. I, I, I think with him you would just sort of buy him a drink and just un- unwind him and let him go and just see what happens I because it. I think. Obviously, there's questions one could ask about, you know, what was, the, why did you search so deeply into the into the Freemasonry and this idea of what were you searching for in the afterlife? There's all those profound things, but I think with him, it's just is such a ball of energy. Off you go. I like it. I think you get more out of Beethoven, and I think you get a lot more out of um, Mahler on that on that more deep sense. And if Tchaikovsky would be interesting to talk to yeah. as well. Mm. Excellent. Well, uh, Michael, I want to thank you so much for this awesome conversation today. This was really fun, and um, and I know we're all looking forward uh, to your week here in Kansas City. And I'm, we're serious about bringing the warm weather, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's, please. That's, that's required, please. You must be um, glad that you're asking a British man to bring warm weather. It must be <laughs> things are Things are desperate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in case they don't let you pack any sunshine in your carry-on, we here at Beethoven Walks Into a Bar have discovered the next best thing and we call it the top five it's 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 the top five walks into a So in honor of today's guest, uh, I thought it would be fun for each of us to name our top five pieces of one Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And as we've discussed, he's a pillar of music for so many reasons. And in his relatively short life, he wrote such an incredible amount of music that we thought it might be fun to list our favorites. And perhaps we'll even unearth some pieces of Mozart that uh, our listeners haven't heard. So here we go. Are we ready for the top five? Let's do it. I'm ready. Awesome. Uh, Jason, you're up. Oh, boy. Well, it's first of all, this is an impossible task because there's so many great works. But in no particular order, I have to say the Jupiter Symphony for the last two and a half, three minutes alone of the coda, the final movement, I think it's one of the most incredible things he ever wrote. Um, up till yesterday, it was the clarinet concerto, but then I had to listen to the exposition of the first movement 74 times. So it's been bumped out of my list to number six. It'll be back in the top five again soon. Instead, I'm going to say his third violin concerto in A major. I just think that's a really innovative piece. And I, I loved playing it when I was younger. I love conducting it now Any opportunity I get, um, La Nozze de Figaro. I mean, one of the great operas of all time, especially the end of Act Two, the way he builds with a duet to a trio and just keeps adding voices. Another incredible moment in his writing. What a, I always have a soft spot for his Alleluia from Exultate Jubilate. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have a great soprano, I just think that's a transcendent piece of music. So I'm going to say the Alleluia. And finally, his Dissonance Quartet, which was a real breakthrough. And I remember the first time I heard it, the last person I thought would have composed it was Mozart. And so hmm. the fact that he was able to accomplish that way back in 18-whatever-it-was is incredible to me as well. So those are my top five. Very good one. Thank you. Oh, you got you got a, the approval. That's good. Now well I'm done. nervous. Good. Well done. All right, Stephanie looks nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous now. <laughs> don't, don't be shy. Go for it. You're, you're going to say the clarinet concerto, aren't you? I no, can tell I'm not. You better. In fact, what? what? But I will start. You're going to say the I flute will, concerto? I'm going to say the clarinet quintet <laughs> is ah, on my list. Oh, that's a good yes. one. Yes. 
Yes, it, but the clarinet concerto. I didn't want to put two of the clarinet things in my list, but the, obviously the clarinet concerto was very high on the list as well. Uh, but I, um, uh, the clarinet quintet, um, I also included uh, Mozart 40 on my list. Mm. Um, Requiem, Marriage of Figaro, and then we mentioned earlier the Grand Partita, which I have a, a special place for um, because I got to play it um, not with Mike because there are no flute parts, but when Mike and I were both at Rice, I got to play it and I, I got to learn how to play the basset horn while also learning the grand partita. So, very good. <laughs> the, um, that was a lot of fun and uh, very uh, just a tremendous piece. And that's absolutely my number one. Nice. That's a that's a good list. All right, I'm very. I'm, good. That's a very good list. I'm going to um, share my admittedly kind of dorky and very self-serving <laughs> top five list. And then, uh, and then we'll let our, our maestro uh, round this out properly. But um, I have to emphasize here, very self-serving. So, okay. so number one, I mean, there's got to be an opera on this list. And of course, for me, it has to be Magic Flute. Ooh. Not only because there's a <laughs> flute in the show, but actually the writing for the flute in the in the orchestra is some of my favorite music to play. I'm sensing a, a, a trend is about to There could occur. be a trend. There could be a flute, trend. Flute and harp. What do you reckon? Flute and harp coming up soon? Don't get ahead of me now. Just <laughs> one, could even, one could even say the flute writing is magical, right? One oh. could say it's magical. magical. So, yep. All right. so the other the other thing, in addition to not uh, ever being able to play the Grand Partita, I regret that I will never really have the opportunity to play not only a Mozart string quartet, but really anybody's string quartet. And the closest I'll get really uh, are are his uh, flute quartets, which really aren't like string quartets. They're more like divertimentos, which is like a you know flute concerto with three other people there. Um, but they're <laughs> but they're still good. Um, uh, they're wonderful pieces of music. So I could name any one of those, but I'll I'll say the D major because that's that's probably my favorite to play. Um, and then, of course, uh, I agree. The uh, Jupiter Symphony, Forty First Symphony, is is a favorite. Now, this one is still self serving, but it's going to sound a little odd. The the C major K five forty five piano sonata. It's it's the one everybody knows. The da da and it's the only one I've ever been good enough to sort of play as a young <laughs> piano player. And and I loved it. And the thing that's so beautiful about it, I mean, it's so cliche, but you know, Mozart Mozart probably more than any other composer, I think, ever, can take something just unimaginably simple and make it into the most glorious thing ever. So that's on there. And then you gave it away, the, the flute and harp concerto. I think, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think it's a legitimately beautiful piece of music, and uh, and it's one that I get to play every now and then. So predictable. Yeah. Or as is known in London, the concerto for flat and sharp. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right, Very Michael nice. Francis, what do you have? What are your top uh, five? Well, I mean, I think this, what's interesting is that we've all come up with quite similar ones. Um, I'll throw in also the G minor string quintet um, as mm. being just one of those just astonishing pieces of conversation that he, so many profound things where words fail, music speaks. I think that sums up and for me is one of the greatest pieces of chamber music that he wrote. Um, I'm going to put in two piano concerti, I think. Um, I'll put in number nine, just because that is one of those moments of just breaking through into 
an incredible level. Whenever Mozart's in a minor key, and interestingly, most of my choices are him in a minor key, uh, I think things happen that are uh, completely incredible. Um, and the second movement of that is um, spellbinding. Uh, if I compare it with another piece that doesn't count as one of my top five, I'll also mention the Sinfonia Concertant for the same reason, oh, the second mm-hmm. movement. Mm. Um, this piano concerto that we're doing, uh, K491 in C minor, um, is the is the apex for me of, of the piano concerti. has the largest orchestra, um, fl- one flute, two oboes, two clarinets, bassoons, trumpets, timps and horns. Um, and he, what he does with the wind writing, with the conversation and these this extraordinary sort of balance between Apollonian and Dionysian, this sort of logic and wildness that goes on is uh, absolutely incredible. I've lost track of how many I'm doing now. Um, Don Giovanni, just, I just love, again, I just think it's just such a raw, um, it's not as witty or as charming, but it's something more, something darker uh, that I love about him. And then we're left with, you know, the Requiem or Jupiter. Um, You've all said Jupiter and I, Absolutely agree. It is a, a spellbinding masterpiece. So I will finish with the Requiem. Um, so nice. I think you said that, Stephanie, as well. I did. So yeah, I think the good. Requiem, even though unfinished, where he mm-hmm. was heading, mm-hmm. um, is both tragic that he was so short-lived, but also incredible that he managed at the summation of his life to write this piece that says so much to all of us about our fear of the afterlife. Mm. Good list. Those are all good lists. I think there's a few pieces on there, too, that are new. That, that people might not know as, as well, especially the ninth piano concerto. Yeah. I haven't heard that for a while, so I'm going to go back and check that out for sure. Yeah. Well, everyone listening can check that out because we'll put together a playlist here for in our show notes that'll include links to all of this music as well as Elgar's first symphony that we're going to hear with the uh, the Kansas City Symphony with coming a up massive soon. hope for the future. What That's a brilliant. Right. Yes. <laughs> I like it. I, I like that it. we're hearing so much uh, hopeful music. We were we had uh, Maestro Eduardo Strausser on uh, just recently and he was here doing um Prokofiev 5th Symphony with us mm. and there was it was also the theme of hope and looking forward. And I think that's something that we all need. And music mm-hmm. is absolutely the way that we can can do that and communicate that. Well said. Um, Michael, thank you for being uh, such a wonderful guest. This has been so much fun. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And we can't wait to see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Pleasure. I'm really looking forward to coming with some warm weather in my back. But even if we don't, <laughs> I don't manage that, uh, we will have some astonishingly deep, powerful music to perform together. And I can't wait to share that and to experience this orchestra. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how you all approach this music. It's going to be wonderful. Thanks, Michael. Great pleasure. Thanks, everybody. So remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, and definitely attend our concerts with Michael Francis pianist Martina Filiak and your Kansas City Symphony on March 4th through 6th. As always, you can call our box office for tickets or purchase them from the website at kcsymphony.org.